Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose... uh, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, this is an exciting uh, prophet to, to preach. You know, we're going through these minor prophets, and they're called minor not because they're short or, they're, uh, or that they're less in importance. They're just less in size. That's why they're called minor prophets. And Jonah is, um, you know, we've seen in all these prophets, actually there's not a lot of biographical information about these prophets. We find that he's the son of Amittai, and uh, in Second Kings, the only other reference in the Bible to Jonah, he is a prophet to Jeroboam. And uh, so, so there's not a lot to know other than some unique things about Jonah. You know, Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah is unique in that it's a historical narrative. So it's not prophetic literature. In other words, we're going to learn more about Jonah than we're going to listen to Jonah. You know, it it speaks more about his life than about his words. In fact, there's only one sermon he gives. It's at chapter 3, and it's only five Hebrew words long. But when you read the book of Jonah, as I trust you will, uh, it's filled with, with prose, its style, its irony and satire. It's really a very, very beautiful book. Uh, The other uniqueness about Jonah is, of course, these divine interventions by God into the life of Jonah. Uh, Most notably, of course, the, the big fish. Now, many scholars see these miracles and the you know, intervention of a, of a fish, the intervention of a plant growing, a worm, the scorching wind. And they say that it has to be legend or it has to be a fable or it has to be some sort of parable. And I guess I would just challenge it this way, that most parables and most legends are very general. They tend to be very short. They don't have specific names and they don't have specific places. But, but here you're going to see in the book of Jonah that it's very specific in terms of its names and places. They use historical figures. They go to actual places. But not only that, but Jesus refers to Jonah as a historical person, and he compares his ministry to him. And, and I would say this, if you're here and you just have trouble believing it, about the fish particularly, 
uh, then I would just say to you, there's probably a lot of other things that you'll probably have trouble believing. I mean, maybe try even God made the heavens and the earth. You know, if you want to struggle with believing something in the Bible, a fish swallowing a man is probably you're not, it's not your greatest struggle. There are plenty of other things to struggle. So I don't want to get caught up in that. In fact, as one author said, he said that we look so hard at the great fish uh, that we fail to see the great God of which the whole book is about. And that's really what I want us to take away, is this idea that God is seen as great in his concern for the nations. That God is great in his concern for the nations, and he's going to use his power and his sovereign purposes to bring about all the nations coming to know him. But all God's also concerned about not just the, the nations, but about this prophet Jonah, as we're going to say. Uh, that, that Jonah is a disobedient prophet, and yet God cares for him. God is a very caring loving God. You know, the structure of the book is pretty simple. The structure of the book is uh, part, really the first two chapters is the first half. And, and in this, you're going to see him in a boat and in the belly of a fish. And in this, we're going to see how God is, is chasing Jonah. He's chasing him because Jonah's fleeing. In the second half of the book, and you're going to see that in Nineveh and on the side of a hill, that he is chastising or chastening Jonah for his uh, kind of resentfulness to God's mercy. And then we'll finish at the end just with the last verse. And you notice the last verse in chapter 4, 13, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 11. He says, should I not pity Nineveh? It's a question that's not answered. Now, Jonah wrote this book, so he left it unanswered. I think because he wants all the readers of the book to answer the question themselves. Should I not pity Nineveh? Should we not pity? Should we care about the things that God cares about? Should we pity the things that God pities? Should we be concerned with the things that God... So I don't know what's concerning you most right now. Uh, there may be many things that are troubling you and concerning you and drawing your attention away, but, but is this going to be one of them would be the question. Now, the book itself, I, I would encourage you to read it or listen to it today. It's only 50 verses. It only takes eight minutes to read. So it's very, very brief, but you're going to see it's really packed with a lot, of, a lot of great and interesting stuff. So let's look at it. So turn with me, if you will, to chapter 1, and we'll look at God chasing, chasing a prophet. Now, Jonah is, of course, sent to Nineveh. You see that in 1, in verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. Not a huge shocker, right? He, Obadiah was sent to Edom, so it's not unusual. But he's going there to Nineveh, this great city. And, and this great city, it's great for a few things. First, architecturally, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the world power at the time. So they had the hanging gardens. Think of a 50-mile aqueduct bringing water from the mountains. It was architecturally, it was sophisticated as a city but it was also great in terms of its wickedness. The Assyrians were uniquely wicked. Some of the things that they would do to the people they captured, I would not want to repeat up here. Uh, we think about our culture, child's play compared to their culture. It was unfathomable what they would do to people. So it was great in wickedness. So they were great in the sophistication of the city, but great, and so Jonah is sent. That's not the shocker. Prophets are sent to prophesy. Here's the shocker. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, this is unusual. This is the first twist. A prophet of God not listening to God telling him go to prophesy. So he goes to Tarshish. Now, he goes to Joppa, which is a port city, and he sails, gets a one-way ticket, I imagine, to Tarshish. Tarshish was a Phoenician port in Spain. So 1,500 miles away from where he is supposed to be. So Jonah is making a quick getaway. Make no mistake, he is clearly disobeying God. He's, he's running from him. He doesn't want to say yes to the plan that God has for him. So he gets on the boat. Now, in trying to flee from God, we see that he really runs into God. Look in verse 4, <clears throat> and notice how he says it here. He says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea so that the ship was threatening to break up. This is Jonah trying to outrun God, and God hurls. I love that verb. He hurls a wind. So you have the boat now being battered literally to pieces. The sailors are crying out. They're throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship. They're crying out to their gods. Remember back then, there was no monotheism. And so they had different gods for different areas, gods of the sea, gods of the land, gods of the mountain, gods of the plain. And they're calling out to their god. But Jonah is sleeping. He's sleeping in the boat. Now, you know, Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. And, of course, he'll be going down into the water. You kind of see the spiraling effect of Jonah. So he's sleeping. But I don't want you to make any mistakes about it. He wasn't sleeping a sleep of faith. You know, if you think about Jesus, he was in a boat in a storm as well. And he was sleeping in the back. And he was sleeping a sleep of faith. He trusted himself to the care of God. Jonah isn't trusting himself to God. Jonah is selfish. He does not want to go to preach a gospel to a people that he doesn't like. And so he's disobeying God. He doesn't care. Even when the captain comes down and rouses him up, in fact, he says, arise, just like God had told Jonah to arise. He tells him to arise and call upon his gods. And of course, they, they cast lots, which was an ancient way of figuring out who the bad guy was. And, and they cast lots, and Jonah it came up to Jonah. And so Jonah explains. He says, yeah, I'm running away from God. I fear God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, and I'm running away from him. And so now the sailors are in a bit of a quandary. What do we do with this guy? He obviously knows the God who's bringing about this, this trouble that we have. What do we do? And so they ask Jonah. Now, <clears throat> when sailors who are pagans facing death ask a preacher, what should we do? That's kind of an entree. That's what you love. You love to be able to explain. It's like an atheist coming and saying, he's about to die, and he's saying, what do I need to know before I die? This is a preacher's dream to have this kind of Entrance, you know, think about Peter when he's preaching in Acts 2. They're convicted of the heart, and these men say, what should we do? And then, of course, Peter preaches, calls them to repent and believe. What does Jonah do? He says, pick me up and throw me over. That is like the height of selfishness. I am the one man of God on the boat with the gospel of God, with a call for repentance and faith, and he says, would you assist me in my suicide? He's asking them to commit assisted suicide rather than giving the message of God's saving grace to these people. It is absolutely, I want you to see the irony there. I, I mean, these sailors are calling out to God, and this man wants to, to die. Well, they pray 
before doing anything. Look with me at verse 14. He says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and, and made vows. So, so here's what you see. You see, <clears throat> Jonah wants you to see the irony. He wants you to see the tension. He wants you to see the kind of the shock of it all, that you have Jonah now sinking to his death, and yet you have the sailors who did not know God reaching out to God and worshiping him, looking up. <clears throat> what happens to Jonah? Well, I don't know. He's sinking down. Maybe he begins to think, you know what, this, you know, for a lot of people, we can talk about death pretty casually. But when you start dying, it gets really serious. Maybe he thought, I just jumped out of the pan into the fire. Maybe he began getting scared. But here's what happens. The Lord, in verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So in chapter 1, you have him in the boat fleeing God. And now you have him in the belly of the fish. All of chapter 2 is his psalm. It's a psalm of praise. It's not a psalm of lament. You'd think it would be a psalm of lament. He'd be lamenting his sin for disobeying God. It's not so. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. Why? Well, I think he was probably coming to terms with, you know what, I'm about to die and I'm about to see God. And God appoints a fish to save him. So the fish isn't a form of judgment. It's a form of salvation. God is being merciful to Jonah. God is saving Jonah from himself. You know, I don't want you to get caught up in the, the fish. You know, some people really struggle with, can a fish swallow a man? They try to get examples of it in history. Uh, here's the reality. The reality is that if God can create the heavens and the earth with a word, then you're going to point a fish to save a man. But I want you to see the point of it is that he is saving him. He's delivering him from himself. And then, then we see Jonah give thanks to God. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord alone in 2.9. So Jonah kind of comes to it. We're going to see later. He doesn't fully understand the mercy of God. He doesn't fully understand the salvation of God. Not yet, at least. And so when God then, when he comes to his senses, at least partially, God doesn't speak to Jonah, but he speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits him up on the beach, and he's back on dry land, back where he began. So let me just draw a couple takeaways for you on this. We're through two chapters now. He's in the boat, he's in the belly, now he's back on the land. Number one, do you see here in the first two chapters, you're going to see that God does care about holiness. I mean, God does care about sin. Sin provokes God. God gets angry over the nature of sin. It's not just the Ninevites' sin. The Ninevites' sin came up to God and it provoked him to bring them a prophet to declare judgment. But I would say something more. The sin that God is provoked over isn't just the sin that has kind of collateral impact. It's the sin of saying no to God. I think Jonah provoked God. I think, Jonah's, I think God was merciful to Jonah, but I think Jonah's sin provoked God because he says no to God. Do we say no to God? Do you say no to God? I mean, when you look at your life, when you consider the different aspects of your life, do you find yourself saying no a lot? I mean, the things that you look at with your eyes and you scan across the internet and, and you're tempted to click on that, 
but you know that you shouldn't. Do you do it anyways? Because it's kind of saying no. You know, the Spirit of God prompts you, avoid that, but you go after that. That's kind of saying no. Or money, if you're prompted to be generous, and yet, you know, you don't want to be generous here because I want to buy this for me. Is that saying no to God? Is it kind of running as God's Spirit's trying to lead you? Or perhaps in your marriage, you know, in your context of your marriage and your your spouse has said something to bother you. Do, do you respond? You know, you probably shouldn't, but you go ahead anyways, and you bring back a harsher response to him or to her to kind of level the playing field. But you're not really leveling the playing field. I mean, these are all ways that we can say no. The use of our words, the use of our time. Are you saying no to God? Because what you see here is that saying no to God or running away from God is really quite hazardous. The repercussions are significant. I mean, God will intrude on our running away. He'll intrude our, he will intrude on our adventure, and he will bring us to a place uh, that, that may be difficult. I'm not saying every struggle you have in life is a result of God somehow bringing a storm into your world. I'm not saying that. But oftentimes, there are calls to have a stop and think, am I running from God right now? Am, am I acting in a way that is contrary to God's known will, to my heart, to my mind? God will bring hardship. We've seen that throughout the prophets. You know, in Amos chapter 4, he said, I sent pestilence, you didn't return to me. I sent drought, you didn't return to me. I overthrew your cities, you didn't return to me. So, so just be mindful, if you're a Christian here, Saying no to God is never a good thing. It will never advance you to where you need to be. But I want you to see that though sin is, provokes God to anger, and though he may, and by the way, this is part of the reason why God has given to the church the, uh, the responsibility to discipline her members. You know, when the church exercises discipline on a member that is sinning, it's really an act of grace. It's an act of salvation. It, it, it's kind of delivering a person from running headlong into being disciplined by God. So the church and its discipline is actually kind of a means of salvation for you. If you are going headlong into sin and you are just ingratiating yourself, you're giving yourself to it, and the church comes along and brings a measure of discipline to you, that's a good thing. That's trying to get you from being thrown overboard, if you will. It's trying to prevent you from walking into greater danger and hazard. But even when you see the provoking of God and even the discipline of God, do you see the patience of God here with Jonah? I mean, Jonah is the prophet of God. Did you notice all the ironies as we went through the story? You know, the sailors are, of course, crying out to God as best as they knew how. Jonah's sleeping. As, you know, the sailors are even trying to be concerned with Jonah by rowing against God, as it were, when he told them that God was, that he was running away from God. And Jonah doesn't show any concern for them. You see the sailors ultimately worshiping God. Jonah doesn't repent and worship God. Jonah's almost seen like just a spoiled little brat. And, and, and you're kind of thinking, Jonah... Who is the prophet of God here? You're supposed to be it, but look at these. These sailors are actually acting more godly than you. And yet God doesn't give up on Jonah. I mean, it shows us that the men and the women of the Bible struggle with sin. Hello. 
I mean, it, it, this idea of, well, we think you're perfect. Nobody's perfect in the Bible except one, Jesus Christ. So Jonah's not a flat character. He's not a prophet of God that steps on the scene and preaches everything and people are saved. God's saving Jonah while he's using Jonah to save others. And it's just the nature of our struggle with sin. There's that internal rebellion that we have. We see it in Jonah's life. But God doesn't give up on him. God gives him a second chance. But before we look at the second chance that you see in chapter 3, can we all admit this truth? That if God tells us to do something, doesn't it just seem easier to do it? I mean, you wouldn't have the first two chapters of Jonah if he did just do what God told him to do. But can we agree with the lesson that when God calls us to obedience, it's usually better to obey? That there's rarely the case of disobeying. There's never the case of disobeying God. So, so here, Jonah 1 and 2, God is chasing Jonah and he catches him. And now he's going to chase him. And that's what we see in chapter 3. So it's kind of take 2 here. Look at 3, 1 and 2 with me. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out its message that I tell you. So here, what God's doing, we're going to do this thing again. We're going to repeat the lesson here. And so this time, though, Jonah does go and he preaches. But notice how he preaches. The pre- he, he gives five Hebrew words. Look in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that it? I mean, that's, it's like cliff notes or something. Like, what is he giving us here? Is he trying to sabotage the message? Does he hate Ninevites so much that he's not, he, no mention of God, no mention of repentance, no mention of, of sin, there's no mention of the sacrifice. There's no mention of anything. He just simply says, yeah, 40 days, you toast. That's what he's saying. And, and what I think we see here is, I, I don't know what was on Jonah's mind. If he was really trying to give some kind of a subpar message. But the greater miracle is this. They're greater than the fish, greater than the sea, is that they believed it. That they heard this word of judgment, and they believed it. And they repented. Look, in verses 5 through 9, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. That's kind of, it's, it's the opposite of, of nice soft cotton. Uh, from the greatest of them to the least of them, the, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, kind of a, a posture of humility. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink on water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now just notice that this is a king from the greatest. They're repenting. The repentance is evidenced in sitting in ashes, wearing sackcloth. They know that they've sinned against God. And they're repenting before God. But notice that there's no presumption. There isn't, okay, God, I did this, you do this. They said, who knows, maybe God will relent. They don't know. I mean, what humility? We're going to repent anyways. We don't know. They believed God. I mean, this is a revival that's happening. You know, you think about what Jesus said in the parable of the lost coin and the, and the lost son, that if one sinner repents, the angels rejoice. How about this? 120,000. What do you think the songs were going up in heaven at that point? Can you imagine the rejoicing? 
over all those sinners repenting? They were coming, what is repentance? You know, God delights in repentance. Repentance is when you and I finally come to terms with the fact that we have offended a very holy God. We've sinned against him by our ambivalence, maybe by our antagonism, maybe by our apathy. We've wanted to be our own God. We've treated the creator of my life and your life as he is nothing. Or he's an old man, not worried or not concerned or not aware of things. To repent means that I come to terms with the reality of God's perfection and his right to slay me if he wants to. And that I have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. Many intentionally, some unintentionally. And I come and I come before the one who's given me life and I said, I've sinned against you. It isn't simply being sorrowful over how I've hurt other people. That is part of it. It is part of it. But it's not the whole of it. The whole of it is I've got to say, against you only have I sinned. God delights in repentance. They repented. Look at what God says in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that word for turn is to return. It's to be transformed. Think of Think of caterpillar and butterfly, the same entity, but totally, <clears throat> excuse me, totally different. It, it's a change, a transformation. And God relented of the disaster. God does love. He loves to give mercy to the repentant. He delights to forgive those who have come to him. Do you realize that? If you're here, do you, do you really believe that God loves to forgive? I mean, if you're a parent and your child even shows a modest amount of heartbreak over what he's done, do you stand back and cross your hands and say, not enough, you've got to give me more? Do you set a bar so high or when your child comes <clears throat> and they show the minimalist amount of remorse for how they've sinned, I mean, doesn't your heart, don't you feel your heart draw? I want you to repent. I want you to be right again with me. So the way God is, God delights in this. But folks, this is why we preach every Sunday. The reason you come here, <clears throat> should be a number of reasons, but at least one is that preaching is meant to hold up the holiness of God to reveal to you your sin so that you do repent. Now, of course, repentance is the way that we enter the faith, right? We come to see our sin we repent of our sins, and we are reconciled to God. We believe in God, and we repent of our sins, faith and repentance. But if you're a Christian here, this is what we do all the time. Every day we're repenting, we're believing. When I sin, I'm choosing to not believe in God and to believe in whatever promise the sin is telling me. I follow the sin. Let's say it's lust. And if three extra looks are going to be better for me. God says no, I say yes to, I say yes to myself, no to God. I take a bunch of extra looks, and right now I'm believing in myself, not in God. And then I sin, and then I repent. I say, God, would you forgive me? I didn't believe that your pleasures were better. I thought these were. I am wrong. I have sinned against you. I've sinned against Carol. Please forgive me. It's faith and repentance. That's what we do all the time. Remember a few weeks back, I shared that quote from Thomas Watson. He's a Puritan of the 17th century. He said, faith and repentance are the essential graces of the Christian. It's like two wings by which we fly to heaven. What does your repentance look like? So in your personal devotional life, how do you practice repentance? 
Do you repent every day? Do you repent once a week? Are you still not sure what repentance means? Uh, when you look at your life and you're convicted of sin, what do you do with the conviction of sin? Uh, do you just fluff it off? Do you deny it? Do you blame someone else for it? Uh, do you repent to God? Do you ask forgiveness for the way you've handled your spouse, the way you've handled your money? Uh, do, do you then speak to other people that you may have sinned against? See, for the Christian, this is a major lesson out of the book of Jonah, that we have, Jonah needed to repent. We don't see Jonah really repenting in this book. We assume he did because he wrote it and ultimately came to understand his own sin. But religious people, Christians, repent. Okay, so, so that's the story. In chapter 3, he goes, they believe God. You'd think now it's going to be a party. Chapter 4, it's going to be a celebration, right? No, not so. I mean, this is a preacher's dream to preach five words and have everybody convert it. Okay, you'd think it'd make him happy. It didn't. Look at what he says in 4, 1 and 2. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, prayed to, to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I, when I was yet in my country? He's kind of saying to God, I told you so, God. This is why I didn't want to go. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Simple answer why he left, God's merciful. Is this amazing? I mean, Jonah is a prophet of God, may I remind you? And he is angry at God for saving the Ninevites. The Ninevites, as I said, were wicked people. They did not qualify to be good enough to be saved. That sounds like us. You've got to do these things, and then God may look at you with favor. That's not what it says. He is angry at God because God is so unfathomably merciful to the sinner who repents that even though they may sin 10 bazillion times more than you, God is able to forgive because it's in his nature to forgive. Jonah doesn't pick this lesson up, and so God continues the educational classes for him. And so what he does is Jonah leaves Nineveh, he goes on the hill in the second half of chapter 4. Perhaps he's thinking, eh, maybe Nineveh will revoke their repentance and God can really bring the hammer down on them. And so he's sitting up there, he builds a little bit of, he builds a booth to get some protection from the sun and he's waiting there. And then what God does, he appoints a plant to grow and the plant grows in a day. Again, God's direct intervention. Maybe it's a gourd, wide, broad-leaf plant giving him shade. It says it pleased him. Same Hebrew word that he was displeased over their repentance. He's pleased by the leaf. We're beginning to see, you know, uh, Jonah's need to repent. And then, of course, he's pleased by the shade. Then God appoints a worm, which destroys the plant. And then God appoints an east wind, which brings the heat of the desert upon him. And now he wants to die again. I mean, Jonah really does not want to live in this whole thing. You keep seeing him go to death. Why? God says, do you do well to be so angry? And he goes, yes, I do. It, it, can you believe his words to God? Yes, angry enough to die. And so God catches him in the trap, and he says in 10:11, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand or their left hand, that's that moral ignorance, and also much cattle. In other words, God is using a plant to show Jonah the darkness of his heart. Jonah is literally pitying a green plant more than he is people. 
Now, obviously, this is shown in very stark terms to kind of bring up to us. What do we pity over the lost? You know, when you look at Jonah, the two lessons are there that I, that I said at the beginning. God's love for the nations is far greater than we can understand. God's love for people who are absolutely more, morally ignorant of him, wicked to the core, God has a design to save them. But God's also merciful to Jonah. Jonah needed a major spanking. And God is patient with him, teaching him and instructing him about the very mercy of God that he thought he understood. You know, remember now the whole storyline of the Bible. God chose Abraham to be the father of a nation. And this nation was to be a witness of God. And they were to witness God by their lives. So they were to draw people to themselves by their holiness and their beauty and their, their, their kind of love for God. They were to be drawing people to themselves like a candle in a dark night will draw a moth. But they were also to go to the nations with the promise of God's grace. They did neither. They did not reflect God's glory and they didn't declare God's glory. Jonah was called to do that. He failed. So Jonah is like a little picture of Israel here. As Israel failed, so did Jonah. Jonah was a racist, if you want to get right down to it. He did not like other ethnicities. Jonah was a nationalist. He felt like God had just chosen Israel and let the nations go to hell, is what he would have said. He didn't understand that the choice of Israel to be a witness to the world was by the very same mercy of God that he was to declare that to the Ninevites. He didn't get that. Do you get that? The same mercy that you have been given has been given to you to declare to others. You know, when you look at Jonah, he's really held up as a failed example of a prophet. Uh, in comparison to him, there's one who succeeded as a perfect prophet. That is Jesus. You know, they, they, they parallel in this way that Jonah was taking the message of God's redeeming grace to the lost nations. Jesus came to preach the gospel to the lost nations of which Israel was one as well. That's where the parallel stops. Then the contrast starts. Uh, Jonah was reluctant. Jesus was willing. Uh, Jonah complained about it. Jesus was filled with joy for the mission set before him. Uh, Jonah avoided struggle. Jesus laid down his life in the struggle. Uh, Jesus is the antithesis of Jonah here, laying down his life for us. So what do we do with this now? As And, and you see that even as Jesus compares his, his three days in the tomb with Jonah's three days. Just as Jonah was raised and delivered, so Jesus will be raised. He draws a picture reminding Israel, you failed to listen to Jonah, don't fail to listen to me. When I come out of the grave, when he came out of the whale, when, I said whale, I don't know that it was a whale. It was a big fish. It could have been a minnow. But when he, when Christ came out of the grave, don't fail to miss. They didn't listen to Jonah. Don't fail and not listen to me. That was the warning. So what do we do with this? If you're here today and you're saying, well, okay, that's a great historical lesson, thank you. What do we do with it? Well, I think we have to answer the question in verse 11. At the end of the book, he says, should I not pity Nineveh? So should you care about the things God cares about? Should you be concerned about the things that God's concerned about? 
So right now, you just, in your mind, you've got a list of concerns that you have. What are they? Is, on that list, is there a care for the nations? Do you pity Nineveh? Do you pity those who might be your enemies? They don't have to be across the world. They can be across the street. They can be across the dinner table. But, but do you pity those with whom you're at enmity? Those with whom you think don't deserve the mercy of God? Do you pity them? Do you care for them? Moving with compassion to others, there's three things I, I want to give you on how we move with pity, how we move with concern. Number one will be that you need to rest in the sovereignty of God to bring about change in people. Uh, change in people isn't going to come through you. You, know, you see in this book five different interventions uh, that God moves. He moves by appointing a wind. He appoints a fish. He appoints a, a plant. He appoints a worm. He appoints another wind. God is intervening in his own, he's intervening in our lives to bring about the salvation of the nations. God will have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around his table. God will deliver people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's going to do it. He's going to do it through us, the Jonas of this world, but not reluctant Jonas, but, but excited Jonas, people that want to declare the glory of God. But it's God's work. Salvation belongs to God. God saved the Ninevites in spite of a reluctant prophet. He can do it even through a resentful prophet. We don't want to do it that way. He's just showing us how powerful God is. So rest in the sovereign power of God. You don't feel up for the task. I believe it. But God is able to do abundantly beyond all that you can even ask or think. But not just resting in the sovereignty. Secondly, I would ask you to remember the mercy of God. He goes to save the Ninevites. Why did he pick the Ninevites and not some other group? Well, because they were the wickedest group in town. I mean, they were the worst. <clears throat> they would stack heads up. I don't know if I show this at one of the services. Did I just say that here? They would take their captives, cut their heads off, and stack them up at the city gate. They would skin people alive and put their skin on the walls, on the walls of the city. They, they were a wicked people. Why is God sending his word of mercy to a lot like them? I mean, you look outside these doors, they're unsavable. I mean, look at all those people. Look how bad they are. Nobody compares to the Assyrians. Nobody in our world compares with the Assyrians. And God's saying, my ability to forgive far transcends their ability to sin. I can forgive those with repentance and faith. I will forgive them. So remember the mercy of God. When you have people in your life that you're just done with, that you're finished with, you don't want to try anymore, you don't want to make any efforts towards, you don't worry if they, it, what they know about God, remember your own mercy, would you? Would you remember that God has saved you? When you want to put yourself on a higher moral scale than others, remember that God has saved you. You know, the one person we don't want to be, you know the parable of the of the prodigal son, I would want to call it actually the parable of the older brother. You know, because the parable was told to the Pharisees. So you, you remember the parable of the prodigal son? You have the father, he's wealthy. The younger son says, hey, I want my inheritance right now, basically saying, I want you dead. And the father gives him the money, goes out, drops it on wine, women, and song. When his money runs out, his friends runs out, he goes home, the dad sees him, loves him, forgives him, throws a party for him. And what's the remaining scene there? It's kind of like this passage, because you don't know how it ends. You've got the older brother outside the party. He's not in the party. That's important. 
He's not yet in the party. And he says, you never threw me a party. I've been working for you my whole life. You never, did, you never slaughtered a lamb for me. And yet he goes and embarrasses the whole family and you throw a party for him? And we don't know what happens to the older brother. I don't know that he got into the party. We don't want to be the older brother. We don't want to be those people who fail to understand the mercy they've, they have by restricting it and not giving it to others. We don't want to be that. So remember the mercy of God. And if you have to look at your own life, look. You've been given mercy. And then, and then thirdly, I would say respond to this call. <clears throat> Israel failed at being a witness for God. Jonah failed at being a witness from God in terms of being an excited prophet to do God's will. We, the church now, are called, with Christ as our head, to go out and to declare, not just display the message, you are to display it through your holiness and through your life, but you're called to declare it. That's Matthew 28, when we read, All authority of heaven and earth has been given to me, that go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> there is in the believer a call to be a Jonah in the sense that we are now called to declare the mercy of God to the nations. Are you doing that? Are you, are you leveraging your relationships? Are you making friends with people so as to cultivate a relationship in which you can then share the nature of the gospel? Are, 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 even in tragedy, even through the, the stuff Carol and I are walking through, there are opportunities for us to speak about the goodness and the kindness of God in the midst of hardship. Are, are you leveraging these opportunities? Are you being friends to people? I'd even go so far as to, as to try to meet people of a different culture, to speak to them, to invite them, to show hospitality. Are you praying for one another that we would be more engaged with people who do not know this message? You know, we're going to begin a, a six-week series in the summer on being an effective witness for Christ by the power of the Spirit, drawn out of the book of Acts. Can you pray for your friends? So, so to, to respond rightly to this text, it would encourage us to become more, at least bolder, in terms of our sharing of the faith. You know, there's a, a quote from Adoniram Judson. He was a, <clears throat> the first missionary off the shores of America <clears throat> to go to Burma at the time. And he was talking about the dreaded day for many people who when they die and stand before God, they haven't handled this message of hope well. This message that we have freely, you've received freely give, the nature of the gospel that you know, that never gets out of your mouth to those who don't know it. Here's what he says. He says, may God forgive all those who desert us in our extremity. May God save them all. But surely if any sin will lie with crushing weight on the trembling, shrinking soul, when grim death draws near. If any sin will clothe the face of the final judge with an angry frown, withering up the last hope of the condemned, it is the sin of turning a deaf ear to the cry of tens of millions of immortal beings who by their own darkness and misery cry day and night, come to our rescue, bright sons and daughters of America. Come and save us, for we are sinking into hell. So he's kind of picturing this scene of the people 
that we should have addressed the gospel too, that we never did. Maybe we're embarrassed, maybe we're scared, maybe we didn't think we had all the theological answers to, to somehow challenge their responses to us. And will they cry against us that we didn't speak these things to them? So Jonah is a very corrective word for us. We see that he chases a prophet. We don't want to be chased. We see that he chastens a prophet. We don't want to be chastened. Should God not have pity on Nineveh? I think most of us would say, yes, you need to have pity on Nineveh. But we're the ones that declare that pity to him. So let's pray and, and ask God just silently. Pray you may, you may be convicted. Um, or you may just call out to God for help to be able to do this, to walk in light of this passage. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.